Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Well, hi, everyone. I'm so excited to have author Randy Overbeck back on the show today to talk about his latest novel, Cruel Lessons. It's amazing. It's an amateur sleuth mystery, and it's the first one in his new Lessons in Peril series. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on the author. Dr. Randy Overbeck, a retired educator with over four decades of experience, is an award-winning author known for crafting suspenseful, heroic, and mysterious tales. His books have received numerous awards and national recognition, and his Haunted Shores Mysteries has achieved bestseller status on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Dr. Overbeck is also the host of the podcast Great Stories About Great Storytellers, where he uncovers the unique backgrounds of famous authors, directors, and poets. He also frequently speaks to audiences nationwide, offering multimedia presentations on various topics. You can learn more about Randy Overbeck and his work at authorrandyoverbeck.com. Well, hi, Randy. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. I'm delighted to return, Sherry. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to talk about your new book, Cruel Lessons. So um, before I kind of jump in, why don't you tell us a little bit of what it's all about first? Well, Cruel Lessons is the first book in a new series that I've created called Lessons in Peril. And Cruel Lessons is the story about a rogue hallucinogenic drug that some middle school kids get their hands on, steal a car, do joyriding, and get killed. And then the story is actually efforts by the school people, a uh, assistant superintendent and a teacher who works with the cops to try to figure out who's pumping these drugs into the middle school before more kids die. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's set in the 1990s for a very specific reason. And the whole story is about all what takes place within a school district, a small rural school district in the Midwest. And, And I am really excited with the early reviews that have come in on the book. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. Well, I absolutely love this story. And uh, listeners, it's available now uh, everywhere. The official release date was October 11th. So you really just need to go grab this book. Now, Randy, Cruel Lessons is a departure from your Haunted Shores mystery series. What inspired you to venture away from cold case murder mysteries? Well, uh, let me explain a little bit about where I am on Haunted Shores, and then I'll jump to this new initiative. So uh, the Haunted Shore Mysteries, there are three of them. They're cold case murder mystery wrapped in a ghost story, served with a side of romance. And I've gotten really good response on them. So good, there is a fourth book in the process, but probably not due out until 25. Uh-huh. But this particular book that is the start of this new series with new heroes uh, and new protagonists, Believe it or not, Sherry, this is actually the first story I've ever written. Oh. So the skeleton of this story, the basic essence of this story was sketched out 30 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's one of those novels that have been sitting in the drawer waiting for me to mature as a writer so that I could do justice to the basic story. Now, of course, the final product is way different than what... Uh, little old me sketched out on 
notepads, um, <laughs> pads back in those days. But but the essence of the story, the central characters, the central theme of uh, student drug abuse, all of those pieces were in the original imagination that I came up with all those years ago. So this is a story that's very close to my heart. And I like the fact that all of the characters in here, good guys and bad guys, are all school people. That's something I've never done before. So everything kind of takes place within the realm of school. Yeah, yeah. So so what made you dig it up now? I thought that my skill level was at the point where I thought I was ready to tell the story in a manner that, that it deserved. If you probably noticed, it is a major departure in several different ways from the Haunted Shore Mysteries. Uh, one of the biggest things is there are seven different POVs in this novel, which is a very difficult task to pull off and make it somewhat believable. So mm -hmm. it took a long time to try to work that through. I think, I'm waiting to see what my readers tell me, but I think the way I've textured it works. I think that it makes the story deeper because you're able to see the see what's going on from different perspectives, from the perspective of the janitor, of, a, of another teacher, of the administrator. And so... I'm hoping that that makes the story a little richer. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed there were several point of views. I like that approach. I like getting inside people's heads. <laughs> now, you took me right back to the era, which I have a lot of fond memories of. It was very authentically created down to right down to the cultural and stylistic details. Was there something about that era that just really resonated with you as you were writing? Yes. First of all, all of the aspects of the story are very deliberately chosen. And as you know, Sherry, having read my other books, all of my books are thoroughly researched, as was this one, too, to make sure that I can get the retelling as authentic as I possibly could. I'm trying to tell a moral tale, I guess, about the danger of kids abusing drugs, but I wanted to do it in a way that I'm not talking about today, but serves as a metaphor for today. Mm -hmm. and the 90s happened to be a really critical point because at this point, we in schools, we, those of us who were trying to handle this, had some very ineffective anti-drug programs. The Just Say No and the D.A.R.E. program, we now know, looking back from a research perspective, they really didn't have that much effect on curtailing kid drug abuse. Right. But we know that at the time, of course, so I wanted to use that in the context of that 90s to do that. Even my choice of setting, I departed drastically. In the Haunted Shore Mysteries, I deliberately pick a famous or maybe sometimes not so famous resort place that people could go to and relate to. Mm -hmm. This story is so horrific in terms of what it might say about a small town that I didn't want to label any small town with this name. And, and I wanted it anonymous so people could actually take their town and go, gosh, that could happen here. Yeah, absolutely. That's my thought process of how I put the setting together, both time-wise and place-wise. Yeah, boy, I remember the, the D.A.R.E. t-shirts and the, the D.A.R.E. officers in the schools and the technology, you know, or computers mainframes took up entire rooms yeah if you weren't back there one of the reviewers wrote well, you're going to have to kind of remember what the time is setting because it'll throw you off with the technology that's being used so you know which is true because it's not like what it was today you know people didn't know how to use email everybody didn't know how to use email you know but today kids don't know what cds are <laughs> what? 
<laughs> that's true. That's exactly right. <laughs> so was your research process different from your Haunted Shores Mysteries? Yeah, I mean, in the Haunted Shores Mysteries, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on location or working with people on location because I wanted to get the feel of Cape May. So that when people live there or visit, they go, oh, yeah, that's kind of what, what that place is like. Here, the research has more to do with, well, I'll give you a few examples. So I worked with drug users, believe it or not, mm. reformed to make sure that the experiences that I portrayed in terms of the kids using the drugs is realistic, that actually would come fairly close to experiences that they had. Wow. I had to, I've never been in a jail. I had to work with a, well, I did research, and part of the research I did with this was I actually had an officer in a small town put me in a jail, handcuff me, lock the doors, you know, all of that stuff, so I would be able to recreate what that feeling would be like for somebody who'd never been there. Oh, my goodness. What was it like? <laughs> um, even though I knew that it was all for pretend, it was still pretty terrifying. Yeah. I don't know, terrifying. It was pretty daunting. I wasn't terrified, but I was worried, yeah. anxious. You know, I wasn't terrified because I know that he was going to come in 10 minutes and let me back out. But right. just thought of that. And as you recall, we won't give any um, secrets away here. Uh, right. But there's a big part about what happens to a car on the mountain coming down the side of the mountain. I had to go to a mechanic to make sure all of those pieces were correct. And the description worked as, you know, so that's just kind of the example of some of the research that I went through to make sure that it came through as an authentic experience for the readers. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's like you're a mystery sleuth. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So we talked a little bit about the setting and the, I mean, everything was just right down to the T, but you also gave us many characters who are just incredibly layered and complex. So I, I just want to talk about a couple of them. And you mentioned Ken Parks, the assistant superintendent. What a great character. I mean, driven by this need to atone for past mistakes and then balancing a career that affects his relationship with his wife. Talk about how you constructed this layering, I guess, in his character. I mean, was there a deeper meaning? Like, were you portraying different messages through him? Like, I don't know, maybe how professional and personal lives intersect or, you know, things like that. Well, most of the things that Ken Parks experiences in his life, um, as, in my career as a superintendent for 20 years, most of those things had come to my door and left or, you know, the, the tension between the demands that the job takes on you and how you navigate that with your relationship is a very real thing. Anybody who is heavily committed to that kind of work will tell you that they've had those kinds of issues. So I wanted to make sure I portrayed that. One of the things that I work really hard to do is create realistic heroes, not somebody who's, no offense, because I actually like Lee Child's work with Jack Reacher, mm -hmm. you know, who can beat anybody and do anything. And, and they're fun to read, but the guy is not real. So I wanted all of my characters, I, I, it's important for readers to see themselves in those characters. They see the flaws of those people, the, the part that, that these characters are struggling with themselves that they're trying to overcome something about their past and make better life for themselves. All of these characters are based on people that I knew. Now, I don't mean that in like, I took this one guy and he's him. Mm -hmm. Most of the characters are composites of people that I actually knew. 
So they might be somebody's face with somebody's actions, with somebody's other's background, you know, things like that. I'm trying to make it as realistic as possible of what I experienced over my three plus decades of working with teachers and staff in schools. Yeah. I love that he was not, and that none of your characters were superheroes. You know, like you said, they're just normal, entirely human. (laughs) And Um, and part of my message, my primary message is about saving children in the dilemma of drug abuse. But part of it is that all of us can be heroes if time calls on us. You know, these people were, they rose to be heroes because of the situation placed them in. Mm-hmm. Not because God gave them some superhero qualities. You know? Right, right. I also enjoyed your teachers. You present a variety of different teaching styles and motivations. And I imagine, as you've already mentioned, uh, you spent a lot of time in the classroom as well. So all of that was directly influenced or shaped by your personal experiences, right? Yeah, right. And what I'm hoping, and I've the, the few little bit that I've gotten back so far, what I'm hoping is that the people who read this, they'll go, I had a teacher like like her. I just she, she acted just like she did. She, she had a coffee mug always in her hand or, you know, so I'm hoping that I've created characters that people will respond to and go, that was just like my seventh grade teacher. You know, he used to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll work. I think so, too. I love that you bring to light, not that it hasn't been brought to light before, but that teachers have a tough job and the whole school system has a tough job in in not just today's society, but you show us that it's been a constant. Well, it's harder today. If I were to rewrite the story and place it into 2023, the expectations and how society is treating teachers would be even more difficult, even more daunting than they were in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I'm hoping that part of the heroism of teachers of battling against those obstacles comes through as well as the actual mystery and who done it and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, the mystery, let me just say that I had things figured out so many times incorrectly. <laughs> So you did a great job, <laughs> but that's I'm the fun in it to me. Worked. Yeah, I'm glad that the red herrings worked. I wanted the reader to feel kind of like Ken does. You know, Ken can't figure out exactly what's going on. So I wanted the reader to kind of go through that same angst. Like, oh, I got it. No, no, I know it. Oh, yeah. It's her. Oh, it's not. <laughs> yeah, that was me. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Now, you, you talked earlier about the different points of view and you know, with so many of your characters having strong motivations, how did you balance the narrative to give each their kind of fair due? Well, I'm not a plotter, Mm -hmm. by and large. I'm kind of like halfway between the plotter and the pantser, I think. Mm -hmm. But this particular aspect required some significant plotting. As I took the old skeleton of the story and laid it out, I had to kind of figure out, well, who could tell that part of the story. For example, there's a very important end of the school night corridor scene that you will probably remember. And I originally had that told from a different perspective. Mm. But I decided, I thought Wally's particular perspective might be most interesting to the reader because 
custodians are often ignored. Mm-hmm. They see things and they're aware of things and people don't even know what they give away for there. So pieces like that had me decide, okay, who needs to tell this part of the story? The opening of the story is told from the point of view of the victim, which we yeah. know very quickly in the first 10 pages. But I wanted to kind of get them to understand where that rough kid was coming from, you know, uh, and what the problems that he had and was trying to, even though we don't see them, him anymore, except in them referring back to him later. Yeah. You know, so there were pieces like that that helped me kind of decide, okay, I, Ken can't tell this part of the story. Stacy can't tell this part of the story. So who needs to come in and share this particular part of the story? Right. From there, just tried to make sure that it was legitimate. You know, what is it that Wally would be able to see, not be able to see? And how would Wally react to what his job is and what he has to do and those kind of things? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I seem to remember that you had said you were a panster and that's why before the interview, I kind of said, I'm not a panster, so here's what I want to talk about. <laughs> and I'm not normally either. What I have found, okay, so I have, this is my fifth published novel. I have another one that's almost finished. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the fourth entry in the Haunted Horror Mysteries is in the very beginning outline stages. And I've learned that as I've gone further along, I'm still not a plotter, but I've moved from being mostly pantser to kind of half plotter and half pantser. Yeah. That seems to work best for me. Yeah. Because that way you still have the freedom of the panster, but within the kind of, I don't know, for me, it would be kind of a the safety net <laughs> of the outline, you know? <laughs> and there are parts, aspects of this that I always have to have as an outline. So I always have a character board in order to keep my characters straight. So that's very, very much an outline, you know? what they look like, what their age is, what their hair color is, what their eye color is, what what are the unusual characteristics about them, what's their background. So I can't pants that, you know, right. in order to work and be authentic and stay in the, that has to be completely plotted. And there are other aspects that have to be plotted as well. But generally, as far as like, okay, where is the story going? It's uh, more of a pantser. But see, since I had the skeleton of the actual this happens to the kids, and this happened. I had a lot of that to, before I actually yeah. dove in and rewrote the story. So there was a lot less pantsing necessary for this one than there is for most of my work. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing that, that stayed true to your writing, uh, I don't know, style or substance, is that you always address uh, contemporary social issues. And so that kind of was your link that holds all your books together, in in my opinion. Why, now this was a story that you dug up, as we know, but how do people see the drug issue today, do you think, when you were researching it? What were the differences in, in the 90s and, and then today that you, did you find out any, uh, those kind of parallels? Well, I think today it's far more nuanced, I guess. The difference, I think, between today and back in the 90s the students in the 90s who got engaged in drug abuse generally got that way through some um, nefarious avenue. Mm-hmm. You know, they they were on the edge, they were risking, or they brought somebody else in, or they, okay? So I, it certainly, it would not be fair to them to say this was a deliberate choice on their part. 
but the students generally gravitated to that based upon their particular desires. Mm -hmm. Today, that's still true today, but today a whole lot of kids end up getting sucked into this, not by accident, but they weren't really intending to go that route. You know, they end up with one dose of fentanyl and they can be hooked for life. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of things that are far worse today than there was at that time. But I'm hoping that there's enough parallel that when people read this, they will be able to look at the situation that we have today with opioids and fentanyl and, and heroin that exists in the schools and, you know, get some truth from the story that I'm telling, even though it's only a metaphor for what the situation is now. Yeah, yeah. Now, the I don't know if you want to talk about the type of drug that was used, because I'd never well, heard of that before. There's no such thing. So that one of the things that I did was I wanted to invent a drug I didn't want to talk about heroin. Okay. I, I didn't talk about LSD. I didn't want to talk about, well, opioids didn't come too much later anyway. Right. But I wanted something that I had invented, you know, that would, in fact, mimic some of the other characteristics of drugs that were around at the time. So in the story, readers learn very quickly in the first couple of pages that these students, these kids have gotten their hands on a rogue hallucinogenic drug that is induced into the system by a tattoo a paper tattoo, not a go to tattoo parlor and get it. And it has impact on their systems that's similar to LSD, but it's faster and it's more notorious than LSD tricks. And I used, as I mentioned earlier, some people that I knew that had used LSD and some other drugs to be able to make sure that I wasn't going over the top or wasn't unrealistic or any of those things. And I purposely chose a drug that doesn't exist as part of that metaphorical purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yes, I could have invented an opioid and had them do that. But this, I thought, worked well, and it works better as an allegory because it's not any real drug. I'm sure I'm going to get questions that are going, did this really exist? And the answer is, <laughs> thankfully, no, it did not, because those people who are in the drug prevention business tell me that if such a drug existed, if in fact a kid could put a thing on his shoulder and have that kind of impact, the effect would be horrific, which is what I was trying to create. So. Right. Yeah. I thought, of course, I'm not an expert on drugs, but I had never heard of that. So yeah, I wondered, huh. Who's your audience for this book? You have a wide audience to read I'm this. I'm hoping that anybody who's been in schools can read this, or at least put it this way, anybody who's gone through public schools can read this book and go, Oh, God, I can see that happening in my school. You know, first of all, I hope I'm able to capture a lot of mystery fans because it's a, mm. it is first and foremost a good whodunit. Mm -hmm. And as several of the reviewers have already pointed out, it's very, it isn't, it isn't, I don't believe it's a character driven whodunit, but it is a very character rich whodunit. So people that for whom that's, that's a big deal for them that they are interested in that. I think they'll appreciate that. The one thing that's kind of confusing, the book is not about kids. So even though kids are the victims, and then we do have two POVs from students in the story, the story is really about the adults that serve the children. Right. And what their lives are like and what happens when this horrific situation occurred. And I'm hoping that readers will be drawn to it because either they hated school or they liked school, either way, you know, but they can relate to what's going on in public school. And part of my goal is to convey 
that although teachers are real like everybody else, that by and large, the vast majority of them are doing their best to try to help kids as best they can. Right. Right. And as you know, one, you know, I believe one of the important responsibilities of a writer is to share these kinds of truths. Of course, I want my readers to be entertained. Of course, I want them to laugh at a few things and be scared at a few things. But mostly what I want them to do is to enjoy the mystery, but to come away learning something they didn't know or getting some insight into a part of the world that they might not have been aware of that they didn't have before they read the book. That's what I like to do. That's when I choose books. I look for books that teach me something as well as entertain me. And that's what I strive to do with my writing. Yeah, well, I am always entertained and always well-informed, too. So, <laughs> Thank you. You hinted that Cruel Lessons is the start of a new series, which I'm really excited about. Do you have ideas for future books in the series, or, or is that top secret for now? I have the next two books sketched out. So the series will continue with the same two protagonists. Oh, so good. Stacey and will appear in in the future books. The next book is actually going to be a departure. I think it's going to be a closer to a thriller than a mystery. So this book takes place in 95. I think that's right, 95. So the next book will stay within that time frame or close to it. And the next book will be about school shootings, about oh. a school shoot. So I've got a lot of research on that. And the first school shooting, the first major school shooting was in 1999. So it's going to be very timely in terms of, and of course it won't be about Columbine, it won't be about that school shooting, right. but it will touch on some of those same issues. And probably, although it's only in the very early stages, it's going to talk about issues about firearms and people allowing guns in their homes and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And wow. also the third one is planned and that, that one is actually going to deal with, um, teachers' efforts to work with and teach illegal immigrants that come into their school district and the push-pull between the authorities and trying to serve children who are sitting at their desk. So that's not as well-developed yet, but that's in the plans as well. So we'll see. I, I don't know exactly where I'm going to go with that, but <laughs> I know what the topic is, and I know who are going to star in that show as well. Okay, wow. Well, I'm excited. Figure it out fast. <laughs> <laughs> Now, so what's up with your uh, Haunted Shores mysteries? You mentioned 2025 for the next one? Yes, 2025 for the next one. I've already uh, researched. I'm actually in the process of researching. So oftentimes, with the exception of the first one, the start of the next installment starts with identifying a location, another resort place that I want to set the uh, Haunted Shore mystery in. And I've done that. If you are a faithful Haunted Shore mystery reader, that you may remember that Daryl is a Midwesterner, is actually from the Michigan area. So I'm bringing him back home, and we're going to meet some of his family, and he's going to end up with another ghost that's uh, going to be dealing with another major issue, and that's the murder and abduction of Native American women. Oh, wow. So... Oh, and there will be uh, Daryl and Aaron will also have a son in this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I just remembered how the last one ended. <laughs> yes, there'll be several interesting, you know, additions to the story. In addition to it being another mystery and another 
beautiful location stuff. I'm looking at a place called Saugatuck. I think I might be setting it there, which is on the western edge of Michigan. Oh. If you're from Chicago, lots of people know this place, but other people around the country don't. Mm-hmm. It's another interesting small town uh, river resort location. But the reason it's 2025 and not 2024 is because I have another book that I will finish next month that's complete departure from all of these. <laughs> it's <laughs> historical suspense set in the Revolutionary War period. Oh, wow. It's a story about the Culper Ring. I don't know if you're familiar with the Culper Ring, Stacey. Culper Ring was the very small yes. organization of spies that Washington put together in order to help win the Revolutionary War. And and historically, we now know that there were six men uh, that we've identified who were in the ring. The last one wasn't identified until 1923. And there is one woman who's never been positively identified. There's been a couple of guesses. So I have created imaginary character, a fictional character, to step into that role as the single woman involved in the culpa ring. In the story, uh, readers will meet George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and Nathan Hale and Robert Townsend and uh, British generals and stuff. It's been a very real challenge because the research quota is huge. But I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been a great deal of fun to write. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I've I heard about the Culper Ring through maybe a mini series. Yes, there was a series on one of the cable stations called Turn. That's it. Which was a fictional version of the Culper Ring. Yeah, they took great fictional liberties, and I take a few fictional liberties too. <laughs> but I've tried to stay very close to the historical record whenever I could. Uh, readers will get to be in on the attempted assassination of George Washington. They'll witness a couple of actual hangings that occur. So I don't know, but in 1776, there's a huge fire in New York City. It destroys one third of the entire city. Mm. That's a big part of the story as wow. well. So yeah, I think it'll be fun. You know, obviously it's a different audience. It's not a history thing involved. It's yeah. a suspense thing. But I love historical fiction as well as mysteries. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd try my hand at that as well. Well, because you weren't busy enough, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was working with my personal trainer and telling her what my schedule was like. She said, no, you are not retired. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Yeah, It's your retirement job. Yeah. Or career. You know, the way I am, I like to have stories that I'm ready to tell by the time I'm able to sit down at the computer and start pecking away. And that's kind of where I am. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I like. Now, I wanted to get an update on your podcast. You uh, have a show called Great Stories and Great Storytellers. How are things over there? Uh, It's going really well. I've been really pleased. The numbers have been jumping in the last all two or three episodes. So I do one podcast a month and each podcast features a great storyteller, either an author, a poet, or a director. I feature both classic authors, like Mark Twain, and current authors, like Dan Brown of The Da Vinci Code. And I feature directors, so we've already had Walt Disney as one of the characters. And this next month coming up, I'm actually going to do, I thought this was appropriate for October, I'm going to do Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, yes. About his storytelling ability. 
And in each episode, for if listeners have not checked this out, in each episode, they hear about an author that they're familiar with, like J.K. Rowling. But they will learn in the 10 or 12 minutes of the podcast, uh, the interesting part of their life that they've never heard of before. Right. So I've gotten really great response from people who have listened to the podcast and enjoyed, you know, they went, I never heard of that ever happened to Agatha Christie, or <laughs> I had no idea that that's what happened to J.K. Rowling, you know. So I do, like everything else in my writing world, I do a great deal of research on this, and I pull together as much authentic information as I can and give readers kind of an insight into what makes them tick and what kind of makes them special as a storyteller, and then tell the part that most people never hear about from the author. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love it. And I thought it was a great idea. I remember when you were first talking with me about it. And so I'm happy for you. I'm glad that it's a success. And uh, listeners, I'll put the information about that podcast in the show notes of this one. So uh, you can give that a listen as well as pick up Randy's book on, well, you can pick it up now. Yeah. And I appreciate you sponsoring one of the episodes of that, Sherry. I really do, because that's part of what makes this podcast grows. The partnering that I'm doing with individuals, groups, libraries, it's a really a mixed bag. But each episode has a partner that helps me spread the word about the podcast. And hopefully that keeps building my listenership. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Randy, is there anything else you wanted to add today? Well, I just want to tell readers how grateful I am. I do a lot of, of uh, book talks all around the country. I did five of them in Florida and, and Georgia earlier this year. And one of the most common questions that I get, which is what I want to share with your listeners, is like, why do you do this? Tell me why, you know, because I tell them I don't make a lot of money. It's not, it's, it is a great deal of work. And it's, so, so they're why, and I, here's my answer. Somebody came up to me at one of these book talks who, and they were, they came up to me and they went, I'm angry with you. <laughs> okay, what did I do? He said, you cost me a night of sleep. I opened your book. I was going to read a chapter. I couldn't stop. I read the whole thing. <laughs> success <laughs> that, that's why i do what i do exactly yeah i love that that's a fantastic story well randy it was so great to catch up with you again and and i look forward to our talks and there's more good things to come so thank you for joining me and, and sharing more about you and your, what's going on well, thanks so much for uh, having me on sherry i look forward to working with you in the future Thank you so much for joining me today for my interview with Randy Overbeck, author of Cruel Lessons. You can learn more about Randy Overbeck and his work at authorrandyoverbeck.com. And be sure and check out our other interviews at insidescooplive.com. <laughs>